Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is John Rice, visiting assistant professor of law at Duquesne University. We'll be discussing his article, Rainbow Washing, which is forthcoming in the Northeastern University Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. John, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here, Andrew. John, I'm glad to have you on as well, because I love having folks who are early in their careers come on the show, and I believe that you are going on the academic law teaching market this fall. Before we start the conversation about your article, which I want to get to in just a moment, I wonder if you'd like to maybe introduce yourself to any listeners in terms of your research and teaching interests and what you're looking for on the job market this fall. Absolutely. I'm so pleased and excited to be beginning this adventure. I am a practitioner who has turned into a teacher scholar, and my teaching includes business associations, secured transactions, legislation, and professional responsibility. And my scholarship interests right now really focus on the intersection between business and social change, which is one of the reasons I'm so excited to be discussing this article here today. I want to explore how business and business entities are being used to effectuate social change and make a difference in the lives of people. With my background as a business litigator, I'm particularly interested in how shareholder litigation can be used as a tool to accomplish that social change. All right. Thank you for that introduction. So to any listeners out there, I believe the FAR distribution has just been released today as of the recording of this episode. So please keep an eye out for John's form in that distribution. John, I'd like to turn to Rainbow Washing, which is your job talk paper for this hiring season. Now, when we hear the term washing in the context of corporate America or marketing, it usually comes with some sort of prefix, and it's usually somewhat of a criticism that occurs in that corporate context. I wonder if you can introduce or discuss that criticism or the criticisms that seem to be connected to the word washing and situate that term washing in the term that you coin and use in this paper, rainbow washing. Washing does tend to have a negative connotation to it, and it derives to the domestic practice of whitewashing, where a homeowner or a person may use whitewash paint to paint over a defect in a structure to hide or conceal it from others. And so that practice has really developed as a term that we use for various types of corporate and marketing behavior, where we see corporations and marketers using various strategies to conceal the truth from consumers. Sometimes, especially perhaps in the context of race, we see this washing being done to eliminate racial connotations. So when you hear somebody say we're whitewashing history, it's usually to situate the history in terms of making it comfortable for white audiences and removing the struggles that more marginalized communities have had. 
or when you hear somebody say we're whitewashing film or TV, it's typically in the context of we're taking a character who has been racially diverse and we're replacing them with a white actor. But the context that I'm using washing in is a little bit different. This is where the corporation tries to present itself as in favor of a cause. In my instance, rainbow washing, it's specifically in support of the LGBTQIA plus community. But in other contexts, such as greenwashing, it is the corporation will say, we're environmentally friendly, we're interested in sustainability. And so they include that in their marketing strategy or in their other corporate statements that are intended to inform investors and making business decisions, when in fact, they may not be fulfilling on those promises. It could be that the promises are just empty promises that the corporation has no intent of fulfilling, or it could be perhaps more troublingly instances where the corporation actually acts contrarily to those promises in places that investors may not be able to see. Thank you for that context. I wonder if we could step back a little bit and consider some of the historical background of this term rainbow washing. Could you talk about how, as a matter of history, LGBTQIA history lines up with corporate support for the community or doesn't line up uh, with corporate support for the community? And what might be the current significance of corporate activities and communications that some might label as rainbow washing, others, including perhaps the corporations themselves, might frame as allyship? What's the significance there? Let's first start with LGBTQIA plus history. And it's important to talk about the history in terms of this community being a marginalized community and also an intersectionally marginalized community, meaning that LGBTQIA plus history also implicates issues of sex and gender as well as race. Historically, let's step back 50 or some odd years into the United States history. The LGBTQIA plus community was really villainized. They were seen as abnormal. They were seen as mentally ill. They were seen as perverts who hated America. There was a correlation during McCarthyism and the Lavender Scare between LGBTQIA plus federal employees who may be subject to blackmail. During this time, with the community being villainized, it became very difficult for the community to have social standing. They were frequently, homosexuality was criminalized in many communities, including New York. On the night of June 29th, 1968, at the Stonewall in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, there was a police raid of a known LGBT bar. This time, this was one of many raids that had been taken out that was really a form of harassment and discrimination against the LGBTQIA plus community. This raid actually sparked a riot that took a number of days and people came out to fight the police who had been engaged in such oppressive conduct against the LGBTQIA plus community. So stepping back in American history, we've seen this trend of the LGBTQIA plus community being vilified or even criminalized. Just the mere existence and being gay was criminalized. During the McCarthyism and the Lavender Scare, employees, federal employees, could lose their jobs simply because somebody believed they were gay. 
This was against the backdrop of people like Alan Turing, who was a famous British mathematician who worked as a codebreaker during World War II and was really critical in deciphering the German enigma and contributed to the end of the war. After the war, he was discovered to be gay. He was arrested and criminally convicted, and he was chemically castrated. He later died by suicide. This demonstrates the way that the LGBTQIA plus community was treated by society. And it shows how this community had to be forced to hide, to deny who they were. And if they were seen, they were vilified. This resulted in various police actions and raids. And one of those raids, one of the most famous raids, was at the Stonewall Inn in June of 1969. During this time, the New York Police Department's Morals Department raided the Stonewall Inn, and the patrons decided they were not going to continue to be oppressed by the police. And so they fought back. And the Stonewall riot rallied thousands of people to come to the community uh, to resist the police abuse at the Stonewall Inn. And it sent a clear message that the LGBTQIA plus community would no longer be oppressed, they would no longer be erased, and they would no longer be marginalized. Stonewall was not the only significant moment in the gay liberation movement, but it was seen as a turning point. The Stonewall riots really marked the first pride, and since Stonewall, every year in the United States, the LGBTQIA community has recognized June as Pride Month as an opportunity to both celebrate the accomplishments that the gay liberation movement has achieved, while also recognizing the work left to be done. These Pride Month celebrations have sparked the interests of corporations, and corporations at the beginning of June will change their logos to rainbow color, they will announce support of the LGBTQIA community, and they will use Pride as an opportunity to market their products and services and turn a profit. However, at the end of Pride, the logos go back to being the same, the vocal support of LGBTQIA issues may disappear, and its business is normal until the next June. This raises issues that the corporations are proclaiming statements of support for the LGBTQIA plus community for the purposes of making a profit, getting members of the LGBTQIA plus community to purchase the corporation's products or services, and also soliciting members of the community and their allies to become investors in the corporation. Based on the idea and the appearance of support for LGBTQIA plus rights and equality. This becomes problematic when the very same corporations that are proclaiming support for the community are also doing things like making political contributions to politicians who are hostile to LGBTQIA plus issues, corporations that have discriminatory workplace policies, or corporations that ignore harassment and discrimination against the LGBTQIA community within the workplace. In your paper, you 
analyze this issue of rainbow washing or this criticism of rainbow washing in light of state corporate law and federal securities law. I wonder if you could talk about the significance of the rainbow washing criticism in light of those two areas of law. Are companies doing something or failing to do something that they said that they would do? Are they failing to live up to some explicit or implicit promise, perhaps, that they're offering that might raise concerns in terms of their state corporate law or federal securities law compliance? The fundamental problem of rainbow washing is deception. And particularly, this is deception to a vulnerable group of people who are hopefully making decisions in accordance with their social values and choosing to invest in corporations on the premise or on the belief that the corporation shares their social values and will act in furtherance of it. This becomes problematic and gets us into uh, state fiduciary duty law and securities law because people are investing in corporations and giving money to corporations who are in turn using that money to engage in conduct that runs afoul of the individual's social values that they were investing consistently in. And so in my paper, I analyze this dissonance, this deception in terms of state fiduciary duty law and securities fraud law. I start with, specifically, I start with Delaware state fiduciary duty law because so many public corporations are incorporated in Delaware, and Delaware has such a prominent role in setting the tone for corporate law throughout the country. And so I specifically look at Delaware law and the duty of loyalty. Under this duty of loyalty, there are a couple of different theories for how rainbow washing may expose directors and officers to breach of fiduciary duty. The first is under a theory of bad faith. And bad faith really comes in a couple of different ways. The duty of loyalty requires that the directors act with an undivided and an unselfish loyalty to the corporation and that they act in the best interest of the corporation. This duty of loyalty is owed both to the corporation and to the shareholders. And when the directors or the officers are engaged in deceptive conduct, they may be liable for engaging in bad faith. I have two theories for how rainbow washing could be bad faith, and the first requires us to look at the Walt Disney derivative litigation. There, the court gave a definition of bad faith that said that a corporate fiduciary acts in bad faith when they intentionally act with a purpose other than that of advancing the best interest of the corporation, with the intent to violate applicable positive law or where the fiduciary intentionally fails to act in the face of a known duty to act, demonstrating a conscious disregard for his duties. This, of course, is a non-exclusive list of what constitutes bad faith, and it's my position that when a corporation makes a promise of support, particularly a detailed, specific promise of support for the LGBTQIA community, they undertake a positive duty to act consistently with that. Failure to act consistently with the promises that they have made is bad faith under this Disney case law. 
Additionally, directors may expose themselves for liability under Caremark, under a classic Caremark claim, where the directors have failed to oversee the corporation and they have failed to implement a system that would have brought the violations of law to their attention. Here, my theory is that under Caremark, directors have a duty to supervise the statements that are being made, the representations that they are making to investors to get investors to invest in the corporation. And they have a duty to supervise that in light of everything else that they are doing. So if on the one hand, the corporation is making statements in support of the LGBTQIA plus community, while on the other hand, they're making political donations to anti-LGBT politicians, they're engaged in discrimination or harassment, or they're ignoring discrimination or harassment, the board has failed to monitor its business to make sure that we are avoiding these types of conflicts and these violations of law. With violations of law, that raises the prospect of litigation. And you review and consider that prospect in the paper. What might litigation in the context of rainbow washing look like? And what challenges would litigants face if they were to bring that sort of litigation? Shareholder litigation itself is always difficult. It's the Delaware courts and courts across the country have carved out an uphill battle for shareholder litigation. In the context of fiduciary duty and shareholder litigation, it is my premise that the most fundamental hurdle that the plaintiffs will have to overcome is the motion to dismiss. If the plaintiffs can survive the motion to dismiss, the plaintiffs have the opportunity to engage in negotiation and shareholder activism to hopefully accomplish governance changes and settle the case without going to trial. And so the problem with the motion to dismiss, of course, is that you have to actually make out that a derivative action is appropriate. Typically, it's in the context of a a shareholder demand excused case to show that the directors were exposed to liability. And so you have to establish that there is a potential breach of fiduciary duty. One of the breaches is the bad faith that I've just discussed. There's another breach of fiduciary duty that comes from a line of cases called Malone versus Bearcat. This is where the Delaware Supreme Court recognized that directors under their duty of loyalty, they have a duty of candor and a duty to deal honestly with the shareholders. These are not separate fiduciary duties, but this is a way that the fiduciary duty guides how directors act. And so this gets us back to the deception that is the problem of rainbow washing. And the directors are deceiving the shareholders and potential investors into believing that the corporation is engaged in support of the LGBTQIA plus community when in fact they are not. In addition to shareholder derivative litigation, there may be potential for private actions under federal securities law, and particularly under Rule 10b-5 and 14a-9 if the statements are made in proxy statements. Rule 10b-5 is one of the anti-fraud provisions of the federal securities laws, and Rule 10b-5 prohibits any false or misleading statement made in the connection with the purchase or sale of securities. So Rule 10b-5 can reach these statements that corporate managers have made about support of the LGBTQIA plus community 
when in fact the statements are not accompanied by an intent to fulfill the promise or when the statements are accompanied by contrary action. Now, claims under Rule 10b-5 require that the plaintiff prove that the statement or the omission was manipulative or deceptive, that it was made in connection with the purchase or sale of a security, and that it was made with scienter. Additionally, plaintiffs bringing private actions must prove standing, reliance, causation, and damages. In my paper, I focus specifically on whether these statements were false statements of material fact made with scienter. And that is what I think is most important for purposes of surviving a motion to dismiss. The harm, the loss causation, and the transactional causation is relevant and important, but it's not typically something that is appropriate to be decided on a motion to dismiss. And so my focus is on whether the statement was a statement of fact, whether the statement was about a material fact, and whether it was made with scienter. The challenge that many of these actions have encountered in courts is that the courts will look at statements that a corporation makes saying, we are committed to diversity, we are committed to equality. And the courts will say, this isn't really a statement of fact. This is puffery. This is aspirational. And it can't give rise to liability under Rule 10b-5. I push back on this claim in my paper. And I say, this is not the quick answer to the question. We need to do a little bit more work. The Supreme Court has recognized that securities fraud can be found in statements of opinion and in statements of forward-looking projections. The Supreme Court has also rejected the idea that materiality can be decided by a bright-line rule. The Supreme Court has said that to be material, a statement must be a statement of fact that relates to something that is important to a reasonable investor, that a reasonable investor would consider important in making a business decision. Or alternatively, information that would alter the total mix of the information available to the investor. That Supreme Court decision was TSC, and it was decided in 1978. And since 1978, the materiality standard has really been treated by courts as a rough proxy for financial information, under the assumption that the reasonable investor really only cares about making money. My paper explores the idea that this may not be true. We see changes in investor behavior along the lines with the ESG movement, with socially responsible investing, and also with generational shifts that investors today care about more than just profit. They care about environmental concerns. They care about human rights issues. They care about diversity, inclusion, and equity. And so these statements about support for the LGBTQIA plus community are indeed statements that investors today are looking to as important in making these investment decisions. And so courts should be really hesitant to dismiss these statements as mere puffery or as something that's not material or even something that can't be proven as false because these statements are made in a context in which they are meaningful and important to investors.
If you are counseling a CEO or a general counsel or a chief marketing officer about their obligations when it comes to their marketing around support for the LGBTQIA plus community, what counsel would you offer those folks? I think the most important thing that I would say is that no statement is better than an empty statement. And so if a corporation wants to make a pronouncement that it is committed to diversity, that it supports the LGBTQIA plus community, I would counsel the corporation to root it in fact and to be able to demonstrate that this is a commitment that is evident throughout the entire year, not just June, that there are procedures in place when we think about Caremark, that there are procedures in place to make sure that political donations are monitored, that workplace policies are reviewed to make sure they are equitable, and that discrimination and harassment suits are handled seriously. I would encourage directors and officers to be mindful that this is not just cheap slogan that you can put in your statements to attract support, but it's actually a commitment to a community that has been historically marginalized and that knows what it means to be marginalized and that deserves equality, dignity, and respect under law and under corporate treatment. So if a corporation wants to proclaim that it is dedicated to LGBTQIA plus equality, they need to be ready to back it up with action, and they need to be honest in the way that they discuss it. A good example is that CVS has a statement on its website that says, we support the Equality Act, which is legislation that would extend the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. However, what CVS doesn't say is that they've also donated quite a bit to candidates who have vocally opposed this act. Now, I'm not here to say that CVS shouldn't be making political donations. I'm not even here to say that CVS shouldn't be making the donations that they're making. What I'm here to say is that CVS needs to be candid about it with its investors. So if CVS wants to say that it is dedicated to the Equality Act and supports the Equality Act, CVS also needs to communicate that this is not the only thing that they consider important when making political donations and that they're also donating to candidates who have opposed the act. And so I, my recommendation to CEOs and to boards would be to root what you say to what you do. In other words, if you're going to talk the talk, you need to be ready to walk the walk. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this article and the interview? And are there open questions you hope to explore in the future? One of the most open questions that I found really interesting as I was doing this work is trying to figure out what the damages for rainbow washing might be. In some instances, they're going to be easy to calculate, where perhaps instances of rainbow washing come to public light and it results in a loss of stock price, it results in employees leaving, or it results in measurable financial harm to the corporation. But even in the absence of financial harm, the mere act of deception and the violation that occurs here seems to me to be something that the law should recognize and provide some sort of remedy for. 
And so the identity harm, as Professor Sarah Dadouche has termed it in the context of consumer protection law, the identity harm here presents a problem that securities law does not necessarily seem well equipped to address, or at least not as we understand it today. So I would like to explore how we might be able to craft remedies for identity harm in the context of corporate law and securities law. I think my takeaway from this conversation is the power that shareholder activism has to effectuate change in corporate law and in corporate governance to make a better world. Here, perhaps the most important thing that could come out of rainbow washing litigation is that the rainbow washing would stop, that corporations would not engage in deceptive conduct, and that people will not be lured into situations where their money is being used in ways that are contrary contrary to their social investment. So I hope that this article will serve as a call to recognize that investors today are making investment decisions on basis beyond just who's going to make the most money, but they're wanting to do it in a way that is consistent with their social and moral values. And I hope that the law will acknowledge that and will provide relief to investors whose values have been violated. Our guest today has been John Rice, Visiting Assistant Professor of Law at Duquesne University. We've discussed his article, Rainbow Washing, which is forthcoming in the Northeastern University Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. John, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.